Please take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 2. The root of our testimony. Throughout the book of Philippians, our focus has been upon unity because the book's focus has been upon unity. So if the book's focus is on unity, then that's going to be our focus throughout the course of the book. Now the call unto unity among the brethren to serve in faithfulness and joy one with another, to assume the mind of Christ whereby we set aside our own ideas and our own priorities for the good of those around us in the body, this is something which we have been working on and we've been working on for any number of reasons. A particular reason has been because within this unity comes health for the body. But as we've talked, uh, particularly as we saw in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to see very clearly this evening, there's also a very real element of testimony that comes through unity. As we consider what we've learned, we've stated on several occasions that unity is something that is not found within our relationships nearly as often as it should be. It's not found even within Christian churches as often as it should be. But let's be clear about something else. It's very rarely found, almost unheard of, in the secular world that there would be a, a mindset whereby each would esteem other better than themselves. Now, there are good books and movies and such which espouse the ideals of a man or woman yielding themselves for others. There are feel-good stories from time to time about a person or a company yielding a measure, measure of advantage uh, for a good cause. But this is not how people naturally operate or think, is it, in the world around us? People take care of themselves. They take care of what is their own, especially when times get tough. And this puts the church in a very powerful place where if we're doing things the way we are supposed to be doing them, the world around us will see something so very different than what they're used to, so very different than what they expect, that it will pierce their hearts like the breaking of dawn. The testimony of the church is not the testimony of a people that are sinless. The testimony of the church is not the testimony of a people that have it all together. The testimony of the church is the testimony of a people who love God and who love one another. Those who have set aside their own petty priorities for the love of the brethren. Not because the brethren are entirely lovable, but first, because the God they love and serve told them to do so, and second, because they have utmost confidence that in doing what they are called to do for the brethren, and as their brethren do what they are called to do for them, that they're aligned with God's design, and where we align with God's design, we find God's results. And that's what we're going to learn about today. Philippians chapter 2, we're looking at just three verses, verses 14, 15, and 16. The Bible says in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Chapter 2 has called us unto the mind of Christ has called us to each esteem other better than ourselves, has called on us to look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, we do this in the name of God, and we do this in the power of God, for it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And we say then, okay, fine, whatever, if I have to, I'll do it, right? 
No, it doesn't work that way. Or we say, okay, I'll serve you, but you had better not fill in the blank. Well, no, it doesn't work that way either. As with everything in the Christian life, the mindset and determination unto selflessness and yieldedness and service to the brethren is not accomplished just through a begrudging action. But even as we talked about this morning, it's accomplished first in the heart. My children are expected within our home and our family to obey. And when we define obedience, we define it as doing what you are told when you are told to do it with a right heart attitude. Now that last bit is important. If my children don't have the right attitude in their actions, my wife and I would not count their actions as being obedient regardless of their level of compliance. Because what we are seeking for is not for them to simply comply with our actions. What we are seeking unto is that they would align their hearts with their parents, with their authority, right? It's so important to understand this about the Christian life, that God does not call us unto compliance. He calls us unto faith. He does not call us unto a set of actions. He calls us unto a heart of obedience. Because God has designed us, as we talked about this morning, to live inside out. So that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 and 18, that a good tree bringeth forth good fruit and a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. The goal of a religious life is to discipline myself into some resolved form of conformed living, but this isn't the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to so love God and to so love one another that not only do I keep God's commandments, but that I rejoice in keeping his commandments. And I wouldn't have it any other way, even if I could. So that we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And this is the same exhortation that undergirds the spirit of Philippians 2.14. We murmur and we grumble at one another, when we are called to serve one another. We are called to esteem other better than ourselves. And as Paul gives this exhortation to have the mind of Christ, he reminds us that Jesus Christ did not go to the cross begrudgingly. That Jesus Christ did not wash the disciples' feet begrudgingly. That when Jesus went out to a desert place to rest and to pray, and the multitudes followed him, and he looked at them as sheep having not a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. He did not feed them begrudgingly, but rather he submitted himself to the opportunity to align his heart with God's, with the heart of the Father, and so to serve in a, in a, in a spirit of love. When we serve one another, but with a spirit of murmuring and complaining, we are yet perhaps meeting a need, but we are doing so while forfeiting the mind of Christ, while forfeiting faith and thus forfeiting spiritual blessing. We forfeit the wonderful things which God has reserved for those who obey. 
My children grumble and complain when I ask them to do something that they don't want to do or something that they don't expect without considering just how much I love them and how much I'm attempting to forge in them character and understanding and work ethic and responsibility, things for which I would hope and expect one day they will sincerely thank me, but today they grumble because they don't understand and they don't have the, the, the trust in their father to believe that those things which I'm instilling in them are worth what I'm asking them to do. But if they could learn, even when they don't understand me, to trust me, if they could learn that even though I'm asking them to do something that their will does not want, yet I am asking them to do something and thus they will gladly do it, then they would grow all the more and be cultivated all the more in those virtues and in that character that I seek for them to have. And if we could only trust God in this twofold way, first to trust him and so not murmur or dispute with him and his commands and his will, but then secondly, in trusting him to not murmur and dispute one with another, we will find without fail that God's way is best. And something else will happen as well. In Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5-7, through 7, we often refer to this passage of Scripture as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told his followers this in verses 13-16. through 16, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath, have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. As Christ's church, we are the representatives of God to this world. Yes, there are any number of people in this world who come to God simply by reading the Bible or by getting a tract or um, by some manner of, of coming across the gospel, personal and individual faith journey. But God has designed this world to be reached through his people. We are Christ's light to this world. We shine that light and many that see that light come to that light. You may never know all of the people who, in seeing your light through a proper testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, will, by virtue of seeing that light, end up on the path to Christ because your light touched their life. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called to show forth the praises of the God who has called us out of darkness and into light. Now, how does this relate to Philippians chapter 2? Simply put, murmurings and disputings, one among another, snuff out that light. When we fail to serve one another in love, when infighting, backbiting, selfishness, personal priorities at once override the call to esteem other better than myself, when I circle my own wagon, metaphorically speaking, factionalize in the church, 
fight and war with the brethren. The world looks at me and the world looks at the church and says, you may look different, you may act different, but you are fundamentally no different than me. And if you've ever interacted with unbelievers who have a natural animus against the church, who are naturally, um, uh, maybe, maybe they grew up in the church and now they are estranged from the church. And by the church, I don't necessarily mean a true church, whether that be um, uh, a church like ours or whether that be a mainline evangelical church or a Catholic church or the Lutheran church or the Methodist church. When they have grown up in a religious setting, and they have left it, and there's some measure of hostility to it, uh, quite often when they look back, they see a group of people who might look different, who might have acted different, who might have added layers of expectation, but who are no different than anyone else in reality, fundamentally. You're no different than me. You have no true distinction. At the end of the day, you're just as selfish. At the end of the day, you're just as hard-hearted. At the end of the day, you're just as self-absorbed and self-righteous as anyone else. And when they see murmuring and bickering and complaining, when they see churches crumbling and splitting over infighting, when they see pastors who are stepping out of the ministry because of uh, moral failures, when they see all of the same things that they see in the world in the church, they look and they say, simply put, they look different, they act different, but they're no different than the rest of us. And we snuff out our light because we're walking in the same darkness that the world is walking in. We bury our testimony in the sand of our own selfishness. God cannot be seen where selfishness abounds. We're not talking about all those other elements of the church and, and, and compromise of testimony. We're talking this evening about selfishness. Murmurings and disputings obscure Christ's light both in us and through us. So as Paul calls for the church to do all things without murmurings and disputings, he then gives this reason. Verses 15 and 16. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The church always stands as a representation of God to the world, but we only represent him properly when we live out the realities of the mind of Christ. Call to do all things without murmurings and disputings is a call to be the sons of God. And this is that identity idea here. That when the world looks at us, they don't just, if they just see people who do things differently, then they're just seeing, but, 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 but they perceive us to be fundamentally the same, indistinct from them where it really counts, then we have no testimony. But if the world looks at us and we are what God says we are. In other words, we've, we've been translated from darkness to light so that we are not just men, but we are the sons of God. That we are living out the fullest realities of the testimony of the change and the identity that is in us as the adopted children of the living God that it has worked its way into the very fiber of our beings. And so we have actually built our lives upon a fundamentally different foundation than the rest of the world's lives are built upon. In this, we have testimony. 
when we live in this manner that is blameless and harmless before the lost world so that they look at us and as those who have been redeemed from our sin and our selfishness by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about sinless perfect, sinlessly perfect. I'm not talking about us being sinlessly perfect. I'm talking about them seeing a group of people who are built on a different foundation because we have been fundamentally changed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. They see Jesus in us and they see the difference. So they see the church and they don't see perfect people, but they see people who are blameless and harmless. Not people who never get into disagreements, but people who function in such a way as to humble themselves before one another in disagreement. Not people who never disagree, but who are fundamentally seeking the same things and so live in harmony in the midst of the disagreements that they may have. That we would be innocent as it relates to the darkness in the world as it operates around us and instead shine forth as the light. And when men and women are drawn to that light, they seek unto the source. They find us, the church of the living God, holding forth the word of life, saying, where is that light coming from? And we say it's coming from the word of God, which is truth. And it points them to the word of God and the word of God points them to Jesus Christ. And then they experience the fundamental transformation when they step out in faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then they see how that fundamental transformation can change them too. So we hold forth the word of life. We live in the ever-present reality of the precepts of the word of God. We follow our Savior with a heart of love, with a heart of devotion, loving him because he first loved us. Paul then begins to speak very personally about the nature of his own life and ministry. And I'm really excited about that message. Probably get to it next week in verses 17 and following. We'll cover that in our next sermon. But it's important for us to maintain focus upon this concept of testimony this evening and how it is achieved in the world. We live in an age where hypocrisy is everywhere. And due to the nature of the digital revolution, hypocrisy is very evident. It used to be that a politician could say what he needed to say in order to be elected today. And the words of his speech would more or less fall into the bottomless pit of history. And five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road when he needed to be elected again, he could take the exact opposite position and nobody would be the wiser because that speech where he said those things has fallen into the bottomless pit of history. But that doesn't happen anymore, does it, with the internet? We're finding that particularly within the last two election cycles, within the last several election cycles, uh, that people are saying things and you can go back five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you can find them saying the exact opposite unapologetically. And, and with some, you can actually trace where their thinking changed. With others, you know their thinking hasn't changed. They're just saying what they need to say, right? And beyond just politics, the internet has served to reveal just how hypocritical how disingenuous many people can be. To this end, the current generation values authenticity above almost any other quality. And we've talked about this before. Many of, I've talked with you about many of this on a personal level. The fact that these generations that are coming, those that are in their uh, really 40 and younger in many ways, are a generation that deeply values authenticity 
And in the newest generations coming up, those that are in their 20s and lower right now, as it relates to the world, right, not necessarily the church, they value authenticity so much that they care more about whether or not a person is authentic than whether that person's thoughts, ideas, or character have any value in them whatsoever. They don't care if a person has bad ideas as long as that person truly believes in those bad ideas. They don't care if a person believes nonsense as long as they are fully invested in their nonsense. And these ideas basically sum up the modern political discourse as we have experienced it, but it's also affected the church, hasn't it? The most passionate, the most authentic among those who seek to represent God in some form or fashion today are often men or women who have more or less rejected the doctrines of scriptures. But they're so passionate They're so authentic and convinced of their own rightness that it doesn't really matter that the things they say and the things they teach are wholly contradicted by the divine scriptures among many, certainly not among the true church, right? And while I paint these ideas in modern terms, do take note that this is not a condition of our society that's completely new. Nothing's new, according to Solomon. Nothing new under the sun, right? All throughout history, we've seen such a spirit where people were willing to cast away truth for some measure of authenticity. People who so wholly devoted themselves to a theoretical desire that they sacrificed reality on its altar. Be it the communism of the early 20th century, be it the French Revolution century before that, and the God of reason in that time, or the misdirected rage of the Roman Catholic Crusades. It's not a new condition to have an, uh, an authentic zeal or an authentic passion that's not rooted in truth. But this is where the church has the chance to be different. This is where you and I have something that the world cannot counterfeit. Because the true church of Jesus Christ the the true follower of Jesus Christ is the only one, the, the church is the only place where authenticity, lack of hypocrisy, intersects with truth and reality. It's the only place. You will find no other place in this world. You will find no other place in history where that lack of hypocrisy, that authenticity intersects with truth and reality as we serve the Lord in faith and in sincerity. And of course, that intersection is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that authenticity and that truth. It is his empowerment in us. It is his spirit in us that works this reality through us. The church thus bears a very unique place. It fills a void that simply no other institution on this world throughout history has been able to fill because no other institution has the power of God underlying them in order to do this thing which is so very contrary to human nature. To live in a manner of careful careful submission to the principles of the word of God enabled by fruit born by the Holy Spirit so that we might truly esteem other better than ourselves. So that we we might 
truly look every man on the things of others and not on our own things and not do so with an ulterior motive and not do so with some confused misdirection of desire, but to do so in genuine love and humility one for another and thus genuine unity, not being disingenuous, not being resentful, not with murmuring or disputing. And when we live this way, we shine a light into the darkness, which is not only unmistakable, but it cannot be reproduced in the world in any other way. And so the church through this thus becomes unique, becomes distinct. We become what Christ wants us to be. We shine as lights in the world. Now, as culture diverges from the church, we are finding that Christians are starting to, uh, uh, from, from outward actions and um, from outward appearance, from outward uh, tangible things, we are becoming more and more unlike the world and the culture around us. But whether or not we as Christians look and act or sound different from the culture and the world around us, it is not that that is intended to make us distinct, right? It is the merging of an obedience to the word of God with a love for God that compels that obedience. In Titus chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes to Titus, exhorting him in the teaching of sound doctrine to the various men and women of the church, really verses 1 through 8, right? And as it relates to young men, in verses 6 through 8, Paul wrote this to Titus. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he, is of the that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. This is the idea of being blameless and harmless and without rebuke. That though men and women will speak evil against us as Christians, us as a church, for the things we believe and for the distinctions that we hold, that as they see men and women manifest the doctrines of Christ, the condemnation of their own hearts over their sin of unbelief is what is manifest. That the evil speaking against us will not be the evil speaking of any true moral indiscretion that they can point to. That the evil speaking would not be any uh, measure of hypocrisy uh, or resentment within our body, but the only evil speaking that they could conjure up is the evil speaking of them bringing things up that have no bearing on reality simply because the condemnation of their own hearts brings them to a hatred of the light that is in us. And so they respond with anger and rejection of the church and the claims that we are evil, not because we are doing anything that is not blameless and harmless, but because of their resentment for the light that is within us. May it never be that the evil speaking of the society and, and the unbelieving culture around us has any merit apart from the revelation of their own shame and unbelieving hearts. Such was the exhortation of Peter to the churches that were scattered abroad. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. It is in our purity and our obedience. And again, obedience not being compliance, obedience being, uh, being steadfast love, that we obtain a testimony by which we shine as lights in the world. Winning an argument brings us no testimony. Getting down into the mud with evildoers around us and facing them on their own level, playing their own game, playing by their rules, gives us, grants us no testimony. It is not in such things that the light of God shines in this world. It may get us our way. It may give us another notch on our gun belt. But it brings us no testimony. It is when we abstain from fleshly lusts with war against the soul. It is when, in the love of God, not only do we obey God's commands, but his commands are not grievous. This is where testimony lies. It is when we do all things without murmurings and disputings that we may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we shine as lights in the world. It is there that we find testimony. It's when we carefully submit ourselves to the mind of Christ that the light of Christ shines through. Peter would again go on to say in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, And who is the, he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason, uh, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evildoing. As we live out lives of patience, love, and righteousness, unhypocritically bearing out the mind of Christ, esteeming other better than ourselves, truly looking to the things of others and not the things of ourselves, we shine as lights in the world. And people will take notice. Some will come and ask us of the reason for our hope. Others will attack us for our good conversation in Christ. But either way, it is because we shine as a light in the world. So of all things that we have spoken of, we might sum them up this way. The very root of the testimony of the church in the world is not that we say certain things that are good and certain things are bad. It is not when we say what Jesus did or why he did it. The very root of our testimony in this world is that we submit ourselves to the mind of Christ. We seek unto unity above self, unto unity above expedience, above convenience. We love and serve one another. We put our others above ourselves. We look every man on the things of others. And in doing so, we find in the very deepest of ways a family where I operate knowing that all those who are around me are committed to my best good, giving me the confidence then to pour myself into others. 
Oftentimes, the reason why we, we don't pour ourselves into others, my children have really been, been working on this and struggling with this. We'll ask them, especially my older three, to serve others. And what will happen is my children will be determined to serve others. And so one child will serve the other child. They're playing with a toy. They'll let the child play with that toy. But then something interesting will happen. That child unto whom they are serving will not serve them back. And they'll begin to take advantage of the fact that brother or sister is serving me and is loving me. And then brother or sister begins to feel taken advantage of. And brother or sister wells up within them this resentment over the fact that they are doing their best to serve as mom and dad asked them to and as the Lord asks them to among my three who are believers. And, and instead of their sibling serving them back, their sibling is using it as a club to beat them with, right? Their sibling is using it as a means by which to take advantage of them. And then, of course, it breaks down. And now the siblings stop serving one another because every time they serve one another, it becomes a net loss for them. But see, if I can serve you with the utmost confidence that you're not going to use my love and my service to take advantage of me, then I am free to pour myself into you fully. And then you operate with me knowing that I'm not going to take advantage of you and that frees you to pour yourself into me fully. Now again, we're called to do this regardless, right? Whether or not you ever, whether or not you, you serve me back or you use my service as a club to beat me with, I'm supposed to serve you and love you. But the church, the church is supposed to be unique in that in this interaction, one with another, it's intended to be mutual. I go out in the world and I serve my neighbor and I don't expect anything back from them. If I get anything back from them, it's a bonus. I let my neighbor borrow something of mine, I never expect it back. If I get it back, it's a bonus. It ought not be so in the church. We're intended to love and serve one another. And the world looks on this and they look on in bickering and in selfishness and in hypocrisy. And if we're doing things right, correctly, the world will look on and they won't just say, wow, they act differently. Wow, they talk differently. Wow, they do different things. The world will look at that and say, there's something different about them, right? There's something, not, not about what they do, not about how they look, not about the songs they sing or the music they listen to. Now, those things will probably be different too, but there's something different about them, and that's our light. We conform, we conform our hearts to God's heart, our minds to the mind of Christ, and they say there's something different, and whatever it is that they have, not, not whatever it is they are, whatever it is they have. Have you ever heard a testimony where someone said it that way? I saw a Christian, and, I, I, and, and they don't say, I wanted, to, I wanted to do what they did. I wanted to have what they have, right? That joy, that peace, that contentment, that, 
that, that, that distinction. And they'll want it too. And so they'll embody the exhortation of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, or we embody the exhortation of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the call to be transformed. So how are we doing today, Christian? How's your mind? Do you bear the mind of Christ or have you become selfish? Has the church become selfish? Have we lost focus upon what it means to love and serve one another? Have you gotten caught up in yourself and stopped looking at those that are without? Uh, have you, has, uh, has your testimony among your family or among your neighbors or among your community been marred by a measure of selfishness so that when people walk away from interaction with you, they may acknowledge that you act differently, but they'd say, but they're not really different from us when you boil them down. Or would they walk away saying, you know, it's not just that they look different or that they act different or that they sound different. There's something different about them. They're not like me. That's where our light is. Over the past several messages, we've seen that this selfish mind is something that we need to look to, look for, and that instead we need to replace it with the selfless mind of Christ where spiritual success is truly found. Are we a people who are clear, consistent, loving one another, without murmurings and disputings, living in purity without hypocrisy? Or may I say it this way, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, or are we just like everybody else? Only with a religious facade. So we seek into the mind of Christ. And we do so by doing all things without murmurings and Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.